shaped by the battle. And we're going to look at that from three perspectives this morning. We're going to look at the reality of the battle. We're going to look at the extent of the battle. And then finally, we are going to look at hope in the battle. The battle is real. The scope, the extent of the battle. And then finally, hope in the battle. First, the reality of the battle. I remember picking up a book several years ago, and the book was titled, Speaking of Sin, The Lost Language of Salvation. And the thesis of this particular author was that you can't avoid these words, words like sin, sinner, saved, salvation. And the author mentions in it, she recounts a conversation that she had while in Greece with a Greek-speaking businessman, a Greek-speaking shop owner. And this Greek-speaking shop owner was talking to her about the decline of the Greek language. So he was lamenting the loss of his home tongue. And he says, when the language is translated, it's an untranslatable language because when the language is translated, not only its beauty, but also much of its reality is lost. And he gave the example of the Olympic Games. And he says, what you in America call the Olympic Games, there's really no such thing as. He says, these events are not play, they're not sports. So she's responding in the conversation. She says, well, what are they then? And he says, I cannot tell you in English. Because the Greek word for what happens at the Olympics has no English equivalent. She goes on kind of applying this, looking at this, and she's reflecting on it, and she says, in the same way, I believe, there are words in the Christian language, in our distinct Christian vocabulary, that have no equivalent in the secular world. They have no equivalent in business, in law, in psychology. She says, these, when we lose these distinctly Christian words, we lose hold of the realities that they represent. She says, you can't just take a word like sin and translate it as rule-breaking. It means much more than that. It's a bigger word than that, with deeper roots. If you drop it from your vocabulary, then our language, not to mention our experience, will be severely diminished. Now, what is she saying? She's making a great case here. She's saying you can't avoid words like sin, sinner, salvation, concepts like are you saved from sin? Because if you want the spiritual realities... If you lose sin, you also lose grace. If you lose, are you a sinner? You also lose, you are forgiven. If you lose, you are saved from sin. You, are, you also lose, you are saved for purpose and love. She talks about how the Bible is not a textbook with a dictionary in back where if you want to just look, sin, you look it up, there's the glossary, and all of a sudden, but you've got to look at it in all of its multiplicity, all of its depth, all of its richness of meaning, because that's how the Bible works. Now, we're talking about the cruciform life. We're talking about a life shaped by the cross. So we're talking about living the new life in Christ, but living it in the context, this is where we live, in the context of the daily grind, the daily battle of life. I didn't print these particular verses, but Paul begins, see the foundation for verses 5 through 11 is verses 1 through 4, where Paul begins, and he begins with, since then you have been raised with Christ. Now, I do want to meditate on that with you for a second, because that is amazing. I want, 
I wonder how much we realize what that is telling us in the promise of the gospel. See, that's the foundation for what I'm about to proclaim to you. The foundation, Paul begins, since then. Since then means this is a reality. This is not something you aspire to. In other words, he's saying when you become a Christian, something fundamentally changes about you. Something fundamentally changes about your being. You've been united with Christ, and when Jesus died, you died, and when Jesus was raised, you were raised. And he says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. That's your foundation. So in other words, you have that new life. You're a new being. You're a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. You have that power. You actually partake and participate in the divine nature. But now you are called to live out that new life still on the earth, still in this world. A world where, and I won't go through every one of the things, a world that is characterized. See, this is the reality of the battle. What is our world? What is the context that we live in? It's a context of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, idolatry, rage, passion, malice, slander, wrath, all of these different things. That's the context. And that doesn't just mean as pagan as pagan gets. That means the anger in our hearts. See, I mean, take a look. One of the things we have to recognize, verse 5 says, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly. What does the next phrase say? In you. The reality of the Bible. See, the Bible doesn't lose the word sin. But I want you to notice something here. It's dealing with the reality of spiritual warfare. It's dealing with the reality of the battle. And do you know, want to know where it says that the major part of the warfare, the battle goes on? It goes on in us. Whatever's earthly in you. See, if you're going to live the new life in Christ, live, since then you've been raised with Christ. Now, I won't let go of that because this is not a... I don't want this to be a moralistic sermon, do this. I want you to recognize your reality is you're raised with Christ. That's how God sees you. But you live in the context of the world. You live in the context of, I get frustrated with my kids. I get frustrated with my spouse. I get frustrated with my church. I get frustrated with the driver down the road. I get frustrated with the person who's serving me lunch meat at Publix. I get, you know, we deal with all sorts of stuff. Isn't that right? And I'm being nice when I say stuff. I mean, that's the, fun, that's the context in which we live. And within that context, we're called to bear witness to the reality, not just the pipe dream. See, I tend to think we think of resurrection. We go, that's way, way out there. That's, Jeff, you're pie in the sky on this one. No, that's not what the text says. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Verse 10 says, since you have put on the new self. That's an indicative. That's a reality. It's true of you. If you're a Christian, you've put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator. But you live in a world of chaos and conflict and turmoil. And we're called to bear witness to the resurrection in that context. And the first Part of that, the first thing that we have to remember, and not just on Sunday, not just when Jeff is beating it in like a drum, you're called to preach this to yourself, is the reality of the battle. 
the reality that there is a conflict going on and your chief enemy is you. I think if I could wake us up to that point and show us the hope, I could really, we've accomplished something. That the chief enemy is not the other person. The chief enemy is not, the chief enemy is ourselves. See, let me say just a couple of things, again, to kind of reiterate and bring home the point. How deeply do we really believe or are we gripped by this? See, I'm kind of, I told Carl in the first service, I said, I'm preaching to the choir here. See, you all are the choir. He has his choir, I have my choir. And my choir, we're all good Presbyterians, right? Calvinists, we like that. You know what Calvinists believe? Presbyterians believe that great, robust doctrine. You know, we can all say it together. It's almost got to have a guttural when you say Total depravity. We're kind of proud, you know, we're total depravity. But I wonder if something, see, we believe in the doctrine and I hope we don't just believe it in the abstract and in general. Do we know how to apply depravity to ourselves? Do you know what you yourself particularly struggle with? Are you acquainted with your own, what is earthly in you? I quote this from Calvin all the time. First pages of his institutes, where he says, nearly all the knowledge we possess consists of these two things. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Do you know your struggles with anger? And I don't mean just anger where you yell. You might have a quiet anger, where you brood, where you're grumpy, where you're irritable, where, let's face it, you really don't like other people, let alone love other people, where you'd really rather be left alone and have nobody bother you and just be kept to yourself. Huh, last I heard that we're called to love God and love one another. Are you aware of your own dishonesty? Verse 9, do not lie to each other. And you go, I, I don't lie. Really? How well are we at really telling the truth vulnerably, vulnerably about ourselves, confessing our sins to one another? See, are you aware of what you struggle with? Am I aware of what I struggle with? Are you aware of your defensiveness? Are you aware, like for instance, here's a test, and I hate this test. I have to give it, but I hate it. I'll be honest with you. How well do you take criticism? I hate criticism. But one of the things I struggle with in my earthly nature is when I have to receive criticism. And we all need to. And it's good for us, like our medicine. But we're required, do you know what's earthly? Do you know your own personally de personal depravity? Because, and let me keep pressing this a little bit. It says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Personalize this. This is not talking about what belongs to somebody else. See, I know how we can do this. Oh, I know exactly what belongs to my spouse's earthly nature. I know what belongs to their earthly nature. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? What he gave when he said, do not judge and all that. Now, he wants us to hold each other accountable, and he wants us to enter in, but there's a key part to entering in. He gives an order to how to enter in. He says, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to be able to take the speck of sawdust out of the other person's eye. Now, he expects us 
to take the speck of sawdust out of the other person's eyes. But he's saying there's a principle here. If you have the Titanic in your eye, I'm coming to you and I'm going to take the speck of sawdust out of your own eye. Uh, excuse me, there is an ocean liner in your eye. How are you going to be able to see to do that? It's a logical priority. You will not be able... See, Jesus is about this. If anybody says Jesus doesn't have strategy, I beg to differ. He's giving a strategy of interpersonal relations within the church, of entering, and his strategy is be self-aware first and be self-aware specifically. Know your intimate struggles and deal ruthlessly with yourself so you can deal tenderly and gently with others. Put to death whatever is earthly in you. Then you might be able to see clearly. See, the new life is all about a community living together in Christ. And lastly, before I move on to the next point, one other quickly thing. When he says earthly nature, what is he referring to here? He's referring to sin, and sin is much more than just the rules. It is not about just breaking the rules. Just a couple of quick verses about what sin is and what the flesh is, because sin is almost more a power, a force that is completely hostile to God and God's ways. So immediately after the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, you have Genesis 4 starting to show the consequences of this, and you have the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And God comes to Cain and he speaks to him and he says, Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now, first of all, what is this not saying? Okay, this is not picturing actual sin getting on its knees, crouching like a baseball catcher, and waiting to pounce on you. But what he is saying is sin is more, this is so much deeper than just breaking the rules. He's saying sin is a force, sin is a power. He's personifying sin, and what he's saying here is you need to recognize See, this is why part of the application is how alert are you to the reality of the battle? You live a resurrection life in the context of the world. Are you alert? Are you awake to the reality of this, that sin is right? When you wake up on Monday morning, sin is behind that closed door, and it doesn't want to ha take you up out for a cup of coffee. It wants to conquer you. It wants to destroy So that defensiveness, that critical nature... That critical spirit you have, that slandering, that way you have of not being charitable with others, that way you have of not taking criticism well, that whatever it is that you're struggling, it is not an impersonal thing. It is a personal thing that wants to devour you. I wonder if we've become complacent about sin. I wonder if I've become complacent about sin. Paul is not giving a place for us to be complacent about sin, especially in our lives whatever's earthly in you. That's the reality of the, of the battle. What about the extent of the battle? Notice that the extent of the battle, notice that what his instruction is, put to death whatever is of your earthly nature. That is, and this is one of those things where we need to maintain and keep our Christian vocabulary. Theologians call this the doctrine of mortification. I know, there's your, there's your $64,000 word of the day. You know, you, what did I learn in church today? The doctrine of, doesn't that sound impressive? The doctrine of mortification. What does it mean? It means to kill sin. 
means to put it to death. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 13. He says, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. Now, I want you to recognize this in context. Obligation means Paul's not opposed to saying we have some spiritual duties. We actually have duties as Christians. And in the context of this, this is not taking away the foundation. What is the beginning of Romans chapter 8? It's verse 1 that says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's put these two things together, teach us how to interpret Scripture here. This is not an obligation in order to be forgiven, in order to be justified, in order to be accepted. There is therefore now no condemnation. Condemnation doesn't exist for the believer. It is not a category that is even there. But out of that, living the new life, you do have a duty. You have an obligation, Paul says. And it's not to the sinful nature, the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The classic writer on this is the 17th century English Puritan John Owen, who in his book Temptation of Sin writes the following. He says, the choicest believers. Now listen carefully to the words because you have to put these truths together. The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. And the principal efficient cause of this work is the Holy Spirit. It cannot be accomplished by man-made means. Do you hear what that's saying? We have an obligation. It is to not tolerate sin in our life. And again, I wonder if what we do in our lives, we go, that's right, we don't tolerate sin in our lives. Adultery and lying and do you tolerate consumerism? Do you tolerate materialism? Do you tolerate how you use your time, how you use your money? Do you tolerate having a critical spirit? Do you tolerate your anger, your defensiveness? We are commanded, and why are we commanded? We're commanded because of the, see, we have to actually note what's going on. We're commanded this because of the irreconcilable differences between the flesh and God. The flesh and God cannot dwell together because of the enmity or the hatred between them. One simple illustration to give this is from the novel Moby Dick. The novel Moby Dick, there is absolutely nothing to match. And as a matter of fact, I don't know why it spends 700 pages, 800 pages to basically give the simple plot of Moby Dick, which is Captain Ahab hates the white whale. He absolutely has malice and hatred. He chases the white whale across the oceans of the world. He doesn't even swallow hard at forfeiting his ship he, that he, and the lives that it, that it carries. If only he could catch that great enemy, the white whale. Now that is a picture to illustrate it, of our savage battle, the extent of the battle, if you let the white whale stand for God, and rather than being too quick to be too harsh and too hard on Ahab, think for a second, don't make Ahab the flesh. Ahab is the whale's enemy, but Paul says the flesh is more than God's enemy. Flesh is at enmity, hostility, the pure hatred itself. 
So if the whale is God and Ahab's hatred, that enmity, is the flesh, who's Ahab? We are. And one of the things we have to recognize, the extent of the battle, is the flesh never gets any better. That enmity, that hostility. Actually, that's one of the reasons just to try to be practical. You'll read sometimes, and it's tragic of how Christians, there can be people who have been Christians for 30, for 40, for 50 years, and they've fallen back into some grievous sin. Sometimes, do you know why that is? That's because sometimes we can be lax thinking that our true sanctification, our true maturity is somehow a subduing of the nature of the flesh. It may be subduing the flesh, but it's not sub- The nature, the characteristic, the description of the flesh is it will always be in enmity, in utter hostility and hatred against God. And we need to recognize that in ourselves. We need to recognize that so we have a healthy suspicion of ourselves, a healthy humility, a healthy fear. Now, you don't want me to end the sermon there, do you? That would really be a bad place to end the sermon. I've talked to you about the reality of the battle. I've talked to you about the extent of the battle. Where's the hope in the battle? Verse 9 says, do not lie to each other. The end of the flesh here. Listen to what he says, since you have. See, these are real. You've got to realize, to recognize, to embrace, to be gripped by, to continue to preach to yourself the realities of what happens when you become a Christian. When you become a Christian, it says, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. John Owen again defines this. He says, the restoration of the image of God is of the very essence of the process. Thus, the new self that we are putting on is being renewed in knowledge in the image of Christ. The restoration of the image of God is the heart of what God is doing. And Paul said earlier in the book of Colossians, what is the ultimate picture of the image of God? He said, look at Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And by firstborn doesn't mean Jesus was born. He didn't have a beginning. As we said and recited together in the Nicene Creed, he is begotten. But it means he is the beginning. He is the firstborn of the new creation as its image bearer. He is the image of the invisible God. And look at what this says. We have put on the new self, which is being renewed. This is what God is doing in your life right now. He is renewing you after the image of Jesus Christ. See, look at how these things work together. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. One of the implications of justification. And in justification, God has counted you, declared you as being just as beautiful, having the same character as Jesus is. He says, this is, when I look at you, I mean, this is amazing to think about. He says, when I look at you, I look at somebody who is just as loving, just as patient, just as kind, just as humble, just as holy as Jesus is. That's justification. Now, sanctification, see, that's how God looks at it, and you can't escape that. You can't get rid of that. Sanctification, he is now making you what you already are in Christ. 
He's renewing you. So what God is doing, everything God is doing in your life is to form you after the character of Jesus Christ. He is wanting to make, he is more interested in your holiness than in anything else. And you say, well, what is the character of Christ? Well, take a look at different places of the Bible. Things like we looked at earlier, the Sermon on the Mount. You know the, the Beatitudes are a wonderful portrait of Jesus, who's humble, who's meek, who's broken, who hungers and thirsts after justice, who's pure in heart, who's a reconciler, who's a peacemaker. Or 1 Corinthians 13, again, a portrait of Jesus. Love is kind, love is patient, it does not envy, it does not boast, it doesn't draw attention to itself, it's never rude, it's never ugly, it's never irritable, it's never resentful. It bears all things, it endures all things, it believes all things. Or the fruit of the Spirit, Jesus is love, Jesus is joy, Jesus is peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now God looks at you as justified and he says, that's how I see you. Do you see yourself that way? You are united to the one who is the image of the invisible God. You are one with him. You partake of that nature. He deals and he relates to you that way. He looks at you as just as beautiful as Jesus is. And then he says, since then you've been raised with Christ. In the context of the battle, in the reality and to the extent of the battle, recognize you are being made what you already are. You're being made what he's declared to you. So what he's doing is he's renewing you after the image of its creation. And notice this. Look at how the text ends, verse 11. It's not just you alone, because he says, here, there is no Greek and Jew. There is no circumcised and uncircumcised. There's no barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and is in all. This is not a, just a God and individual type of salvation. This is God and his multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual family where barriers and walls are abolished, are shattered, are broken down, where divisions are broken down, and where there is one covenant family, one covenant community in Christ. The new life in Christ is a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual family. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Do you share Christ's vision? Since then you have been raised with Christ. Do you share Christ's ambitions? Since then you have been raised with Christ. Do you share Christ's heart, hope, mind, agenda? What a vision it is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us to new life. And I pray that we would live the new life in Christ by the power of the Spirit, recognizing the battle of sin that we wage recognizing, Father, the reality of that battle, the extent of that battle, that it's not easy, but recognizing what you have given to us, that you've given us new life. We've been raised with Christ. Help us to appropriate and embrace that reality. And even as we come to the Lord's table now, you've given us this sacrament to renew us in your grace. 
And grace is not simply we're forgiven, we've received the gift of eternal life, now we go live any way we want. Grace is a power. It's a transforming power that is meant to absolutely grip and change and empower our hearts to give us the ability to live the new life. So I pray, feed us with Christ that we may, that we may live in this power, that we may appropriate it to our lives. Teach us these things in the power of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.